podcast hosted by Faith Church in Indianapolis. I'm Brenda Soderstrom, and I'm excited to continue this journey looking at the abundant life Jesus desires for each of us. Welcome to week three of Abundance Life to the Full. Today we're focusing on the peaceful life. Are you starting to feel like each lesson is just a repeat of the previous weeks? As I wrote this study, I struggled because the overlap from all these topics seemed overwhelming. But as I meditated on these topics more and more, I was reminded of everyday math. Now, I was in no way a fan of this curriculum for my elementary kids, but I did see the benefit of the spiraling approach. In a spiral curriculum, learning is spread out over time and revisited often with each encounter increasing in complexity and reinforcing previous learning. As we study this full life Jesus provides for us, we find that joy, peace, and hope are so intertwined that we often cannot fully isolate them. I think God intertwined these for a reason, and it's my prayer and hope that because we are digging deeper into just three fulls, and these three overlap so much, that this short series will truly be memorable and life-impacting for each of you. If I had to choose a verse that over the past year God has repeatedly spiraled to me, it would be Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A familiar verse to all, I'm sure. In the past, what struck me was the imperative, do not be anxious, and the method, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. And verse 7 was just a nice closing. But this past year, verse 7 has taken on an entirely new depth for me. It tells me that this elusive peace is not something that I can conjure up, create, or control. It is the peace of God. It comes from God with the purpose of guarding my heart and mind to keep me from the downward spiral that so often steals my peace. And this word for guard isn't like a prison guard, keeping me imprisoned, but rather it's a military word meaning to stand at a post and guard against the aggression of an enemy. It's a complete and impenetrable citadel, guarding my heart and my mind. So what does God's peace protect me from? Perhaps thoughts from Satan, worry, uncertainties of life, shame, regret, fear. This is the peace through which the guilt of the past is forgiven. The trials of the present are overcome, and our destiny in the future is eternally secured. This is the peace of God which transcends all human understanding, and this peace will guard our hearts and minds. The world tries unsuccessfully to give us peace through many unfulfilling idols. Money, the stock market and retirement accounts, a career or job, health, technology, knowledge, science, education, relationships, pleasure and entertainment, sports, so many false idols that only lead us further from this peace we seek. Dwight Moody said a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. Most secular definitions for peace focus on the lack of conflict. Dictionary.com defines peace as freedom from disturbance or tranquility, a state or period in which there is no war. And most of us are familiar with the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Shalom means to be at peace, to be complete to be finished, to make safe, make whole, restore, or reward. Shalom implies harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, and tranquility. It's not just freedom from trouble, 
but possessing everything that makes for man's highest good. And the Greek word for peace, erene, is where we get the English word serene. It comes from the word ero, which means to join or bind together that which has been separated. Thus, our ultimate peace is the state of reconciliation that we have with God. Peace is a condition of freedom from disturbance, whether inwardly, within the soul, or outwardly, as a nation at war. It implies health, well-being, and prosperity. It conveys the sense of an inner rest, security, safety, and harmony. The New Testament Greek lexicon says peace is a tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. So my definition of peace? Peace is not only freedom from unrest. It also implies a tranquil state of harmony both with God, within myself, and with my life as it is in the present. When I'm not experiencing peace, it's not because God isn't providing it. It's because I'm choosing to focus on my circumstances rather than focus on my God. Like joy, true peace is independent of my circumstances because it comes from God, and thus peace can be present even in difficult circumstances. Paul's life is an incredible testimony demonstrating that having biblical peace doesn't require tranquil circumstances. Acts 9 tells us the story of Saul's conversion. Verse 16 is interesting to note that as early as the time of his calling, God knew of the difficult circumstances that Paul would have to endure. Acts 9.16, God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The rest of Acts is filled with stories of Paul's sufferings. A helpful link was attached to the end of your homework, and hopefully you took some time to read over it. 2 Corinthians 11.23-28, Paul summarizes, I have worked much harder been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Yes, Paul's life is an incredible testimony demonstrating that having biblical peace doesn't require tranquil circumstances. Paul's circumstances seem quite extreme. What was it that enabled him to exhibit peace despite his troubling circumstances? Well, first off, we see that Paul had a life-giving relationship with God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8-11, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? What kept Paul from feeling crushed, abandoned, destroyed, and in despair? He goes on to say, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Again, in this passage, it's the word life, zoe, that we talked about in the very first week. 
which if you remember, we defined as a life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed, and after the resurrection to be consummated by a more perfect body that lasts forever. This is the life that was revealed in Paul's body and at work in him. Another reason Paul was able to exhibit peace amidst his trials was his faith. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul was being renewed with new strength and vigor inwardly, day by day, by fixing his eyes on and trusting in the unseen promises of God. Third, Paul had a godly attitude. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this word delight means more than just to like. It means to take pleasure in, to be well pleased with, to do willingly, to choose. So Paul willingly welcomes his weakness because it enabled God's power and strength to shine through him. And finally, Paul had an eternal perspective. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. This word finished is teleo. It's the same word Jesus says on the cross when he says, it is finished. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy as he is imprisoned in Rome, awaiting his own execution. However, Paul isn't focused on his own death. He looks beyond that to the glorious moment when Jesus would personally step forward and give him a crown of righteousness as a reward for his faithful service. This word for crown, Stephanos, is not the crown that a king would wear, but rather it's the crown given to runners when they have finished their race and they were victorious. It was the victor's crown. While this crown, most likely olive branches and leaves, wasn't expensive, it was highly esteemed because it represented commitment discipline, skill, endurance, and training. It went to the victor. Paul was looking forward to the day that Jesus, dressed in regal splendor as the exalted king of kings, would place this victor's crown upon his head and say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Philippians 4.12, Paul states, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul's deep relationship with God, his faith in God's ability to keep all of his promises, his godly attitude and eternal perspective enabled him to experience contentment and God's peace here on earth, despite the troubling circumstances that he repeatedly found himself in. I also asked you to look at Stephen's life in Acts 6 and 7 as an example of peace while under fire. What really struck me was how many times Paul reiterated that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit full of wisdom, full of God's grace and power, and did I say full of the Holy Spirit? If you read all of Stephen's speech in chapter 7, you might notice that he refers to God over 30 times. Stephen's complete focus on God 
gave him a supernatural peace. Stephen demonstrated that a life full of the Holy Spirit and closely linked to God and his purposes is a life of peace. You see, biblical peace is multidimensional. First, God provides us with an objective, finished work of peace that has reconciled sinful man to a holy God. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us. We have crossed over from enemies of God to children of God. This peace is an accomplished fact and is not dependent on what we think or feel. In Colossians 1, 19-22, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled. Past tense, it's a done deal. Now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we have peace with a holy God. But that's not all. There's also a subjective, experiential peace that is available to us because of this foundation of our reconciled relationship with God. Positionally, we have peace with God, but conditionally, we don't always experience peace because there are conditions or things that we need to do to fully experience God's peace. Focusing our mind and choosing to trust God are keys to experiencing God's peace. In Romans 8, 6, it says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And we remember that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and we witnessed the peace that he possessed. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, God will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in God. We need to trust God and keep our mind focused on him. As we trust God in his plan for our lives, we experience tranquility of our souls, a settled, positive peace, regardless of the circumstances of our life. And going back to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where it told us not to be anxious, and to commit ourselves to prayer and petition and to be thankful. This sounds a lot like trusting God. And the result? God's peace will guard our hearts and minds. So yes, there are things we can do to better experience this peace. But it's important to remember that we're still not the ones creating this peace. But rather, we're redirecting our hearts and minds to be fertile ground to receive God's peace. Experiencing this peace in our lives is closely linked to our fellowship with Christ. Last week, we looked at the joyful life. We discovered that joy was found in God's presence by following his truths and trusting God with our future. These same truths apply to God's peace. And again, God's presence and our fellowship with him and orienting our lives to his plan is integral to our experiencing all that God wants to provide for us. Romans 15:13 says, "May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit." This is an ongoing trust, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. 
The scripture doesn't say that God will fill you with joy and peace because you trusted in him, past tense. But it's as you trust in him, ongoing. This peace is incredibly powerful and it's there for each of us, but to fully experience it, we need to continually trust in him. Many of us struggle with this control issue. We trust God for our eternal salvation, but struggle to trust him in our everyday circumstances. Joyce Meyer writes, Christians are called believers, but many times are more like unbelieving believers. We trust our friends, the bank, the stock market, or the government more than we trust God and his word. Sadly, a lot of people go to church, hear what they should do, and then go home and try to do it on their own. They usually end up desperately telling God how hard they're trying to do what they need to do, and they're leaving him out. In John 15:5, Jesus says that apart from him, we can do nothing. We need to lean on him for help with everything in our lives. God wants us to put him first in our lives. He wants us to put our full confidence and trust in him all the time in everything. Then, then you come to a place where the blessings of God, his righteousness, peace, and joy overflow in your life. I wonder if this is why Jesus repeatedly spoke of peace in his final days. He knew how much we would desire peace, yet he also knew what an internal struggle it would be to continually trust him and keep our minds steadfast. He knew that what the world tries to call peace will only disappoint us. The joke on every beauty pageant interview is that every contestant desires, quote, world peace. However, we are far from achieving this. The only peace this world knows seems to be shallow and unfulfilling. Isaiah 48:22, the Lord says, there is no peace for the wicked. Jeremiah 6:14, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And Jeremiah 8:15, we hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. Comparing the world's peace to Jesus's peace is like comparing a twig to a 2,000-year-old redwood. So what do the scriptures say about Jesus's peace? Well, we know that Jesus's peace is not at all like the world's peace. It's a gift from him to us. He freely gives it to us. Jesus's peace is a result of his close relationship to his father. It's calm, controlled, unfaltering, fearless, and full of trust. Jesus's peace isn't affected by stressful circumstances. It allows us to overcome trouble and fear and all that the world throws at us. Jesus gives us his peace so that we will be his ambassadors in this world, radiating his peace to a broken world. But peace isn't just a main message of Jesus. Paul begins 15 of his letters with grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul put together these two words, grace and peace, he was taking the normal greeting phrases of two great nations and molding them into one. Grace was the greeting the Greeks used, while peace was the greeting used by the Jews. The basic ideas in haris, which is translated grace, is joy and pleasure. And we already talked about arene. It's frequently translated peace, but means so much more. It means total well-being, everything that makes for a man's highest good. So when Paul prays for grace and peace on his people, he is praying that they should have the joy of knowing God as Father and the peace of being reconciled to God and that grace and peace can only come through Jesus Christ. You're probably familiar with the priestly blessing of Numbers 6, 24 to 26. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. David Platt expands this passage in one of his devotionals. May God bless you in every way, not just physically, but spiritually, relationally, emotionally, with a joy and satisfaction in him that supersedes even physical circumstances, even walking through difficult times. May you know the blessing of God. May he keep you. May he hold on to you. May he uphold you with his righteous right hand today and enable you to persevere through everything you have going on in your life right now. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May God smile upon your life today. May his face radiate towards you and be gracious to you. May you know his grace in ever-abounding ways. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you today. May you know that you are seen, known, and loved by God, cared for by God. And may he give you peace, a peace that passes all understanding, and guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. May you know the peace of God in a very tumultuous world, amidst busy schedules, amidst all kinds of things going in all kinds of different directions. May you know the peace of God today. Well, now that we've spent some time scripturally studying peace, I'd like to turn the page to make it more personal. I asked you to think about what steals your peace. If you're like me, you likely discovered that many of the same culprits that steal your joy steal your peace. Looking back at my joy stealers, I can list all of them as peace stealers as well. Overcommitment, busyness, worry, comparison, disorder, loss of control, fear, loss of perspective. Last week I researched comparison and overcommitment as my joy stealers. So this week I chose to look at fear and its close cousin worry as obstacles to experiencing God's peace. One thing I noticed as I reflected upon fear is that when my eyes are fixed on the object of my fear rather than on God, my insecurities increase and I spiral into more and more fear. I also recognize that fear and worry aren't usually focused on my present circumstances. Usually it's trouble that's borrowed from either the past or the future. Fear not and do not be afraid are repeated over a hundred times throughout the Old and New Testament. When you include verses that talk about anxiety and worry, that number explodes threefold. So God recognizes our human tendency, yet he assures us in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So I need to recognize that this spirit of fear is not from God. And as such, I need to take this thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. As I studied, I found so many verses in the Bible telling me not to fear and also why I need not fear. That God answers me, he delivers me, he protects me, he comforts me. That God is more powerful than mere mortals. God can alter my circumstances. And God is always with me. God will never leave me nor forsake me. One of my go-to passages is Psalm 46. When I was in college during Operation Desert Storm, there was a lot of fear circulating around campus. I took great refuge in this psalm, memorized and meditated on it daily. Psalm 46 replaced my fear with faith by reminding me that God is a refuge, a strength, a fortress, and an ever-present help in trouble. That wherever God dwells, victory is assured. 
he will not let us fall. That God can usher in peace and make weapons of war obsolete. In Psalm 46, God promises to help me and be with me. And he reminds me that God is completely sovereign and powerful. I love verse 6. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. This psalm was and is so calming to me, probably because it ends with, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I don't think of myself as an overly fearful person, but I do recognize that fear can steal my peace, especially when I allow it to lead me on the destructive path of worrying about the future. So what do I do when I find myself struggling with worry, which is usually concerning my kids? I worry about them choosing to continue to walk with God as adults. I worry about them finding a fulfilling job. I worry about them finding the right spouse. I worry about them having encouraging Christian friends around them. So many ways I allow worry to steal the peace that Jesus wants to give me. So what do I do? I pray. Maybe you wanted a better answer than that, but that's what I do when worry tries to steal my peace. I pray. I spend time with God remembering who he is and praising him for his attributes. I find examples in scripture of God meeting the needs of people and ask God to do likewise in the lives of my loved ones. Joshua 3 is a great example of this. Joshua was preparing to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River, which was at flood stage, and into the Promised Land. God gives many specific directions about how this journey is to take place, but the pearl to me in the story is from Joshua 3.5. Joshua tells the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Oftentimes I have difficulty sleeping because I'm worried about how a situation will play itself out in the future. And it seems worry is my first thought again in the morning. But what if I really claimed and believed this, that God was planning to do amazing things among us? Today, tomorrow, amazing things. Because he is. The next day, as soon as the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant touched the water's edge, the water stopped flowing and the people crossed over on dry ground. You see, every day God is planning to do amazing things among us. We just don't see them because we're too focused on the problem and what we think the solution should be. Now we have an energetic Jack Russell Terrier named Charlie. Charlie loves to go to our cabin with us. He loves the woods. He loves to chase animals, birds, squirrels, turkeys, deer, you name it. Unfortunately, he also loves to stare at holes waiting for a, craw a crayfish to come out. I had to laugh the other day as Charlie stared intently at a crayfish hole and missed seeing two deer race across our field. He was so fixated on that hole that he missed the amazing things happening right next to him. How many times do I miss the amazing things God is doing because I'm busy staring at an empty hole? Another great Bible story is told in 2 Samuel 10. It tells of the Ammonites' fear of David's motives so they intercept David's sympathy delegation and they humiliate David's men by shaving off half their beards and cutting the butt out of their garments. Then the Ammonites realize how obnoxious they have been. They panic and they hire 33,000 soldiers from the surrounding kingdoms to help them fight the Israelites. The result? A complete routing by Israel, leaving 700 charioteers dead, 40,000 soldiers dead, a dead army commander, and those neighboring kingdoms? 
they now choose peace with Israel and no longer are helping the Ammonites. Besides the fact that the beginning of the story is a little bit funny, why do I tell you the story? It's for the verse in 2 Samuel 10:12. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. This is what I mean when I say I find an abstract Bible story and I pray for God to do likewise. Now my kids aren't facing a battalion of Ammonites, but I can still pray that they will be strong, that they will fight for God and what matters to him. And I can ask God to do what is good in their lives. I believe, I believe God will do what is good in his sight in my kids' lives, but sometimes I need to see it in print to remember it, to claim it, to pray it, and to let God's peace envelop me. I think there's a bit of surrender and trust in saying the Lord will do what is good in his sight. I get so much peace from seeing God's faithfulness in scripture and knowing that he is just as faithful in my life and in my kids' lives. Another verse I've memorized that pops into my head when I'm filled with worry is Luke 12, 25. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? It helps me see how fruitless my worry is and reframes my thoughts to the sovereign goodness of God. I also pray for Bible character for my kids, usually by praying scripture. It's amazing how when I see God developing these character traits in them, so many of my worries disappear as I realize that he who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. Focusing on not fearing or not worrying to me is like saying, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. Of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is, yes, that pink elephant. So for me, in order to not focus on my fear or worry, I need to focus on my omniscient, omnipotent God, and I do that best by prayer. When peace is elusive, I know I need to spend time being still. My natural reaction is to spiral and panic, which in turn leads me further away from Jesus' peace. Jesus has given me his peace, and I need to receive it and apply it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. If it was a done deal, Jesus wouldn't have had to conclude with, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I find that after spending time in prayer, my heart is ready to choose peace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This word rule means to be an umpire, to direct or control. It means to depend so fully upon the peace of Christ that God's peace becomes the umpire that makes the calls in your life. It's something I need to let happen. It's a choice. Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went to the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot house and saw the steersman at his post and holding the wheel unwaveringly and turning the ship out once more to sea. The pilot saw the man and smiled. Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. All is well. Today, may you see the face of your pilot and know his peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Thanks for listening in today. Join us next week in our final session as we study the abundantly hopeful life.